All right, here we go. It's Doc Doc time. Dr. Jenna Burton is in the house. And we're going to be talking about inflammatory bowel disease. I got it right this time because this is take two. And first time around, kind of messed it up a little bit. Well, you actually, you actually did everyone a favor, James, because everyone gets IBS and IBD confused. So I think that's something we'll probably start with quite early on. And we've brought the man in to talk to us about this. Well, he's probably the one that's going to tell us the difference. Who is he? This is Dr. Hossam I'm from MediClinic City. You're in City Hospital, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah. And thanks for having me over, guys. It's great um, to have you on the podcast. Uh, it is a pleasure. I do like the setup and... Um, it's, uh, you know, it's good that I can at least uh, shed some light on uh, something that affects people um, of a variety of ages. And there's a bit of um, mystery around it, shall we say, yeah. uh, especially with the advent of Google. Um, <laughs> oh, isn't this, the, this is like, hey, you're, you're hey, both medical professionals. Professor Google. <laughs> this is your worst enemy yeah. because... I mean, just like me, I just, I went in, I Googled, I'm looking at stuff, I'm looking at symptoms and mm. I'm looking at things, I'm going, you know what, I've got like five of these things going on already, it's like, maybe it's me. It's like, yeah. oh man, it's got to make it really hard. No, for sure. And, and, and I think it's really important that, um, uh, you know, things are um, structured and clear when people do come yeah. to see doctors in order to get the right diagnosis made right from the start, because once you add that element of confusion, um, you know, you can sometimes do more harm than good, either by treating something that isn't there or ignoring something that is there. So it's really quite important to be quite systematic at how you approach this. So you've got Dr. Google, then you've got friends. Yeah. And then you've got friends of a friend who oh. had a cousin and then their great uncle. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think we need to give a little shout out to Professor, Professor Google, because at well, least it makes people a little bit more health aware. Yeah. So they are more ready. Health to aware s- or health paranoid? A little bit of both. Okay. Both. Yeah. You can definitely paranoia is you, there. Do you have stocks in Google or something? Like, why are you being so kind to Google uh, today? I think, just because <laughs> I think it's really important. We often talk about people, especially men, and especially of a certain generation, ignore things. And sometimes with the help of Professor Google, people might have checked out their symptoms, maybe their wives. And I'm being totally, totally, what, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I'm just. You're being very politically correct here. I'm being very mm. politically incorrect. Yeah, incorrect. incorrect. Um, but you know, people often will say, "Oh, and I've read about this and I've read about this," and so they they then go and see the doctor. Yeah. However, there are the people that have got printouts. They want. They are convinced this is what they have, and they don't necessarily have it, and so it can be difficult. So it's it's like a double-edged sword. Yeah. So what is IBD? Okay. So that's uh, let's start from the top. So in summary, it's a it's a summary of con- it's <laughs> use the same word twice. It's a combination of conditions that um, share some common elements and some things that makes them different. So right uh, off the start, that right off the top, it's it's not it's not sub- one condition, it's not one thing. Yeah, if I can just subdivide it without making it too uh, onerous on our listeners uh, into Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Um, If we can think of our immune system as um, a defense mechanism that helps protect us against, um, you know, diseases and infections and such, and um, occasionally um, there are mishaps where um, the same defense mechanism can cause damage and inflammation within our um, own uh, body, the easiest way to put it is um, 
a lot of people know people with eczema, which is a skin condition, and you mm. can visibly see a rash in an elbow or a joint or such. Uh, this condition, it's not exactly the same, but quite similar, where you find the inflammation within the gut. Ah. And with ulcerative colitis, the inflammation starts, excuse me if I use this term, I use it medically, uh, from the rectum and then goes upwards uh, into whatever uh, part of the colon it may affect. Um, however, with Crohn's disease, it can be any part of the digestive tract, but predominantly at the end of the small bowel where we see the majority of patients have that um, kind of condition affecting them. And why it's important to try and differentiate, if possible, between both? It's because of the, um, there are medicines that work for both, but there are some medicines that work for one better than the other. And even within those medicines, some medicines work better in the colon, some medicines work better in the small bowel. So you'd like to tailor treatment according to what the patient has rather than just throw something at the condition in order to avoid um, getting side effects if you can avoid them, plus getting a better outcome for what you're trying to treat. So um, there are a few considerations there, but uh, you know, you need to kind of get all the assessments out of the way early and then discuss your findings with the patient, educate the patient. It's Patient education is, without a doubt, the most important part of the whole disease journey because if um, uh, you have someone in front of you that has a combination of symptoms, sometimes they don't have much in the form of symptoms, maybe an abnormal test result you know, mm. um, on a routine screening or what have you. Um, if you're not involving them in what this all means, then it doesn't matter what smart diagnosis you come up with or what drug you prescribe, they're not going to take it, they're going to leave, and then this just remains unresolved. So, well, when, we, when we're talking about Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, yeah. do they present the same? Uh, they have some common elements, but they do present somewhat differently. With ulcerative colitis, you, the um, gamut of diarrhea and blood in the stool um, uh, is commoner than getting pain. However, with Crohn's disease, pain can be more predominant. I think this is mainly because of the fact that with ulcerative colitis, the inflammation is mainly superficial and it affects the colon. And in the colon, it's the where you kind of absorb water. So if you could think of that mm. surface being inflamed, you don't absorb water very well. You have more diarrhea. Um, and because it starts in the rectum, if you have inflammation in the rectum, you're more likely to see blood. However, if you have inflammation in the small bowel, you're less likely to see blood because the area that's affected is generally uh, somewhat um, uh, full thickness. So you get inflammation starting from one layer of the colon and it goes all the way through. Uh, diarrhea you can have, but it's less so. And um, the other thing is that Crohn's disease has complications that um, osteocolitis don't. So sometimes you have fistulation or narrowing, what we call medically stricturing. So <clears throat> some considerations there. But without trying to make it sound too medical, uh, the differences um, are important when it comes to managing the patient. Mm. Yeah. I was just going to say, but in as well, often when patients come, when they have Crohn's disease, you'll often find, because it can affect the small bowel as well, where you absorb nutrients, you might find that they are a bit depleted in, in mm. nutrients. They might have had some weight loss. Mm. Maybe they have a little bit more fever, a little bit more stomach pain, as, as we mentioned. Um, and it, they can also have lots of other things that go on in their body, a little bit more than with ulcerative colitis. Um, 
But yeah, it's it's one of those things that people may present and you have an idea of what's mm. going on. And I'm sure Dr. Hassan will correct me if I'm, I'm incorrect. <laughs> the, the, it's hit not, the nail on the head there. That's completely true. Yeah, until yeah. you do a colonoscopy and you start to investigate further, you can't really tell which one it is until you've actually seen it um, sort of with the, yeah. with the magnifying glass, as do, it were. Do these two conditions, do they start developing and they can go unnoticed or we just get, you know, yeah. as the patient just gets used to it? And So that's a really good point. So they can either from the start make themselves really obvious or it can be on and off for a while where somebody then later on comes with a um, let's say like a complication of the inflammation that's happened over time it really just depends on the patient Uh uh, because there are some factors that come to play here so the main um, genetics is really important so this could run in the family it could it's not a direct link so just because you have a family member doesn't mean you're going to get it but the chances are higher Mm. and then now we're more aware of the role of the microbiome in how disease manifests itself is it a midgy that's harassing you on your microphone i know i know it's it's i'm popular with this little thing so so I'm, I'm i'm trying to let it not um uh you know interfere with what i'm trying to say so um uh, what was I saying? About the, uh, the gut biome. Yeah, the really microbiome. Important, yeah. And speaking of Dr. Google, a lot of people have become more aware of this, and I'm a big advocate of um, you know a lot of the research that's come out regarding this. So, you know, we're all born um, with a whole flora of bacteria within our colon, and it changes from birth. So mm. whether you're um, born via C-section or natural mm. delivery, whether you're breastfed or not so just from the start everybody's journey separates which country you lived in what antibiotics you took etc so complicated it, it is it is and and it's just important to appreciate all the factors involved so some patients do come and say what what did i do wrong how did why does this happen to me because a lot of it is happens with people that are younger it's a disease of oh, the young and young really? people yeah yeah and and i think i didn't realize that only which ibd yeah yeah it's usually it's between 15 to 40 is the typical age oh, range isn't it for presentation right. so ah. you can they can be a bit older as well but yeah, yeah often yeah, in the right. teenagers and and in that group a lot of people are young they've got a lot going on in their life they just want to get on with it you know they're they're in university they you know they're in relationships, they want to settle down, they want to have children, they want to progress in their careers. And, um, you know, this can interfere with a lot of these things. So it's really important to try and um, uh, make them have the most in life and fulfill everything that they want to fulfill by making this less of an issue by treating it early um, with the right meds, um, hopefully avoiding all the complications that can occur with it. And, you know, that's why it's really important to educate people so that they know what's going on. So potentially we've got an issue of hereditary. Yeah. We've got, there. people tend to be younger. Do we know, do we have any other things that yeah. factor into this yeah. that might make me more predisposed? Yeah, sure. So, so the microbiome is something that I briefly mentioned on without yeah. going too much into it. And then the other thing is like a lot of, um, you, you know, there are elements such as stress and, uh, that, you know, people that, generally speaking, um, have difficult eating patterns and difficult sleeping patterns. You're describing university students to the letter, you yeah. know, and, and young folks, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, relationships, yeah, school, for sure. for pressure sure. from family. It's like it's yeah. like the the, the sure tsunami of yeah, things. It's tough, but of course, all this affects your immunity, right? You know, just if you look at it that way. And uh, the other thing is smoking. 
Oh, that's an so, interesting one, actually. Yeah. yeah. In this specific um, uh, group of conditions, Crohn's disease, um, in particular, uh, smoking is incredibly damaging, and mm. I am very clear with a lot of patients that do get diagnosed with this condition that stopping it is as powerful as having a course of steroids. So, wow. if you manage to do that, then you really do. Uh, kind of improve your chances in getting over the inflammation that you're under like colon lungs smoking i mean i wouldn't put the two together i yeah. think you know smoke goes into your lungs hey it's all over but th- that that can smoking can be a contributing factor it's uh, crazy and, and the the flip side is that smoking with ulcerative colitis has the reverse effect now oh, this no. doesn't mean i've got to be very clear about this yeah. so what we sometimes see is that people that smoke when they stop smoking they we diagnose them with ulcerative colitis it happens yeah. but it does not mean that you need to go back smoking mm. because overall the disadvantages and the harm that you do through smoking significantly outweigh any minor protective benefits or um, uh, preventative benefits that smoking may um, induce with that group of patients. So all in all, smoking is a no-go for both conditions. Generally, smoking is bad. We we don't like that in medicine. But, you know, one thing we should think about is we've talked or alluded to university students, people that are young being diagnosed with a condition that causes diarrhea, potentially blood loss, passing loads of mucus, stomach pain. One, it's not nice for anybody to have. And two, it's embarrassing. It's something that people are really self-conscious of. And as Hossam said, it's something that maybe they you know, they might be dating, mm. They, mm. they're trying to settle down, they're trying to have children with a condition like this. Yeah. Sometimes it might require hospital admission as well for IV steroids or to tweak their medications for investigations. And a lot of these people can become quite depressed as well. And you often find with any long-term condition that you diagnose, depression can go hand in hand. And, you know, that's something that you've got to be aware of as well. And I guess that's something more maybe a GP would be looking out for than, than in your instance, but um, it is something to bear in mind. It's, it's not a pleasant condition for, for anybody. Body image is really important, really good, yeah. important point you put there. And the, um, <clears throat> you see a lot of advocates, young advocates for body image and inflammatory bowel disease, yeah. um, including footballers. There are a few Manchester United footballers. I'm sorry about that. I know you may not. <laughs> Manchester United, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my dad wouldn't approve. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, awareness is incredibly important, and um, you know, there is an awareness month out there, and and there is with social media, um, there's a, there's a lot of um, you know, uh, positive, um, uh, let's say, um, uh, you know, messages and people that are uh, trying to help everyone that may think that they're alone with this condition when Mm. there aren't. And um, I always encourage uh, whoever comes and sees me with this condition, not only to educate themselves, but to um, try and meet up with people that may um, benefit them um, with trying to understand the disease more. This is a double-edged sword because, as you can appreciate, mm. um, even the fingers in your hands are all different lengths, so not every condition is the same. 
it's very important to make that point. So just because someone else had a different experience than yourself, if you have this condition, it doesn't mean if you do the same thing that it's going to apply to you. And that's so seems, tricky. Yeah, I, I've read also that when we talk about things that can can contribute to us having a, an episode of IBD, overuse of of things like ibuprofen or long term use. Yes, is is that is, is that yes. just Doctor Google talking, or is no, this isn't Doctor Google? In fact, um. You see this um, with patients that are diagnosed. We tend to tell them to avoid non-steroidal anti-inflammatories because this um, specific class of drugs can cause inflammation in any part of the gut. Mm. If you, it is in the in the the little leaflet as well when you yeah. read it. Like that's one of the yeah. precautions. So th- th- <laughs> You've been reading the leaflets <laughs> yeah. to the left oh, of their Always, yeah. always. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, now I finally met the guy that reads the leaflets. So. Yeah. Yeah, is it, this, <laughs> this is the one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've taken the pack box back to the thing. and said, "Where's the leaflet? There's no leaflet in here. Like, where's where's the documentation?" So you haven't you read it once before? I read it every time in case it's changed. Can I just say? I get the ma- I get double glasses on. It's like yeah. you know, I look like a surgeon. <laughs> there's, there's Professor Google can be difficult, but the, the Guy that reads the leaflet is also a problem. Yeah. 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 No, we, we need to have a talk after this, James. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think there are there are two things to think about here. First of all, when you investigate someone with possible IBD, if they're taking that class of drugs, what you find could be just due to the drug. So it mm. can be quite confusing. It could cause a, okay. a kind of a, a wrong diagnosis. So it's really important to uh, try and tell them that actually come off all this and then we'll start investigating how long would they if someone's come in they're presenting symptoms say they're on you know an ibuprofen how long do they have to be off it typically it really depends how much they would take like everything so yeah it depends how much if it's just the odd one then just two to four weeks will be enough but if they're taking quite a a high regular dose uh, then you may um, want to take that with a pinch of salt there isn't a specific time frame or a formula to go with but whoever walks in that door, you need to kind of get a general idea of what their use is. And, you know, a lot of people use these drugs because they're bought off the counter and they're yeah, seen they, as they harmless. They must be safe. Yeah. They must be okay. Yeah. And a lot of other physicians prescribe them because, you know, you feel good. If, you're, if you've got a headache and you take it, you feel good. If you've yeah. got, you know, a menstrual, a menstrual cycle type, um, you know, cramp, you take it, it feels good. You know, uh, joints, if they hurt, it feels... So it's not an unreasonable thing to take. But whenever you come with gut symptoms, you just need to bear that in mind. And being wrongly diagnosed can cause harm. So it's really important Mm. to try and reduce the chances of having a wrong diagnosis. And then to the flip side, someone that wasn't having any non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and then you diagnose them, you tell them try and avoid this class of drug because you have the damage from the immune system and then you have the damage from the drug and you're just trying to avoid damage full stop. Well, I mean, from a clinical side this is a really interesting area of medicine to practice because there are so many moving pieces Mm. and it's so different for every person like no one's really the same and it's it's really like being a detective to to find what's going on and what's contributing to this and what are we going to do and how are we going to deal with yeah, it? Yeah, but that, that's the problem sometimes is it is like being a detective. Yeah, and the amount people, of time you've got to invest. But people can get missed. So a very common scenario is a patient comes in, they have some new onset diarrhea potentially, maybe they're passing a little bit of mucus, a bit of stomach cramps and it's, is this IBS or is this IBD and when do you def- refer on? So irritable bowel syndrome is like, it's a more mild type of inflammation of the gut, is debate as to what causes it it's a benign um condition so rarely if ever needs referral over to the hospital and is usually managed in in a sort of general practice outpatient setting 
and there's been debate is it due to over infection in the past is it due to diet is it people can't break down certain substances and, and that what can cause it is it a psychosomatic illness so it's actually due to run out of stress or depression or whatever it may be and IBD is the immune system attacking the gut and is mm. very definitely something that will need a colonoscopy and to have long-term treatment and usually be overseen by a consultant gastroenterologist. And so a lot of people can be misdiagnosed mm. until their symptoms get really quite severe. Mm. And so that's it. You have got to have your best detective hat on at all times to make sure that the right person gets the right treatment because we've not really alluded to treatments yet, but they, they you know, the treatment is very, very, very different. So what is the treatment? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> nice segue, Jenna. Yeah, well, thanks, James. I've been up and working on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's nicely done. Um, I'm just going to take a step back before yeah, treatment. Yeah, Let's talk about what investigations are done yeah. for this condition. So normally, um, anybody that comes in, um, depending on how they present, it can be subtle or it can be quite obvious. So if somebody comes in with blood in the stool, for instance, more likely to proceed with a colonoscopy early on. But if somebody has a bit of cramp and the odd loose stool, um, especially if they're not, um, uh, you know, uh, older and they're young, uh, you can proceed with just simple stool testing, looking for inflammation. A very common test is called a calprotectin test, which basically is a stool test for inflammation. It's not a diagnostic test that you have mm. inflammatory bowel disease, but it's a good first step. Um, and then you try and do other blood tests to see if you have inflammation the blood and, and such and you know anemic and just routine simple testing ultrasound if you have abdominal pain and such and if the stool tests show no infection if there is inflammation if there's inflammation in the blood then your um spidey sense tingles and then you go okay i need to take it a step further here explaining to the patient why you're taking it a step further uh, so that they understand the logic behind it and at that point, um, you can proceed with a colonoscopy, which is a, a test involving a, a flexible scope that looks at the colon. You try and at the same time, if possible, um, obtain samples. Uh, so the um, diagnostic criteria there are what we would call endoscopic diagnostic criteria and then histological diagnostic criteria. So there are two levels of evidence. And then at the same time, because Crohn's disease affects a small bowel, a lot of people may get an MRI of the small bowel because the scope can't go um, past the end of the small bowel afar. Um, and that would be radiological evidence. Sometimes you can get a CT scan if you suspect things like a fistula or a collection. Mm. Fistula is an abnormal connection between part of the gut to another part of the body. And a collection just means uh, collection. It could be fluid or pus or whatever it is. But you can't see that with endoscopy and MRIs aren't generally that good seeing that. So you, you choose it depending on the system. And once you have all that information, so you've got your radiological criteria, you've got your endoscopic criteria, you've got your histological criteria, and you've got the kind of simple blood testing before that. And you sit with the patient and say, right, based on this evidence, you have this disease or this disease, or you don't have this. And depending on what part, you know, if it's Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, what part of the gut it affects, then you can provide treatment accordingly. And uh, treatment involves a diet. It involves medication. Uh, medication has different classes. It involves lifestyle changes, as I alluded to earlier with the smoking um, part of things. 
Um, and then with uh, some patients, surgery may be an option depending on what we find. Um, unfortunately, despite all the efforts and the drugs that are available, 20% of patients, and in some cases up to 30, um, will require surgery and medication wow. will not work for them. 30%? Yeah. yeah. If, if you catch this earlier, is obviously there are, are there better results if yes. one yes. manages diet and et cetera? And is, is diet a big part of this as well? Yes, it is. So um, specifically with Crohn's disease, diet is a major part of this. Um, a lot of research has been done um, with um, the pediatric population because we try and avoid giving them medication because they're at a sensitive age when it comes to growth and such. And uh, we found that there's a specific aspect where we bring diet back to really, it's called an elemental diet. You bring it back to basic bare bones and you find that it reduces inflammation in the gut significantly mm. um, without trying to use this term multiple times, but really it is like taking a course of steroids. Wow. Working in a lot of places in the past, like when, when I was working in Cambridge, the population there seemed to be you know, very anti-steroid and they're happy to proceed with this diet. But then in more urban areas, people are less inclined to do so because it's harder. Mm-hmm. And... Um, really the, the main issue with the diet when it comes to that specific diet is compliance because it's really quite bland. Um, so it does help certain people. And of course, not being extreme about this, this is something that reduces inflammation, but there are also um, other diets that we can recommend that can reduce symptoms, but not necessarily reducing inflammation. So mm, okay. for, for sure, um, a dietitian's input is incredibly important in a patient's journey. And not addressing that is just, it's low-hanging fruit. It's an easy win. And a lot of patients do want to know what they're putting in their body and whether it's doing good or bad to them. I mean, in this this era, we're really thinking about food. We're talking more about gut biomes. So that must make it a lot easier for you to get people to buy into diet change and lifestyle change. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, I'm, I don't know about you guys, but you know, I'm a different person today than I was 10 years ago, than 20 years ago when I was at university. Oh, God, it feels like a long time ago. I shouldn't be doing <laughs> you my age. Living on cut noodles, you yeah, yeah. So, so um, at the moment, even though I do enjoy the odd, you know, like um, cheap meal, uh, overall, I, I do care about what I have. And um, it is important for me to know how I'm treating myself with what I'm eating in order to sometimes avoiding issues is better than dealing with them so if i can i'll just do my bit and if i can't then i'll take the medication for it i think like you say though a lot of it is put back onto the patient and what do they want and all you can do is offer them the treatments that are available and then it's up to them you can't force them to have a more elemental diet it's very difficult sometimes with children as well they're going to birthday parties that's what that's how i found the chicken nuggets and the french fries and (laughs) you know stuff and you know grilled cheese sandwich with you know craft cheddar cheese slices in a piece of plastic come on that's the oh my gosh, can't live without that stuff uh, <laughs> but at the same time as well if you can educate them from a young age yeah. it can be helpful and dr hossam alluded to surgery and just to clarify that is actually to remove a portion of the bowel and um, sometimes people will end up with a bag where they basically rather than either go in the toilet they will have a collection into a bag which again we talked about the the more social aspects of the disease and that's a huge thing mm. for a young person to to go through and again as you said you'll see a lot of people on instagram proudly wearing their bag mm-hmm. and and parading it around which is great there's a lot of sort of pro body image with a bag 
Um, but still, it's still an awful lot for yeah. somebody to have to, to take. So if you can encourage them to try and do as, as much as they can without having to go to such radical measures, the better. Once someone's treated, so they've, they've been diagnosed, they've gone through treatment, can, can this be cured? So it depends what your definition of cure is. Uh, if, if the problem's with your immune system, you can't get rid of your immune system. Mm. Like, yeah. You can't different. reset the Im- immune system. You can't just, no. you know, the, there's not a magic reset that... So, so it, if someone has a tumor, you remove the tumor. If someone has an infection, you kill the infection. But if it's your own genetics causing the damage, then what you can do is you can try and, for want of a better word, cure or control it in order for this uh, abnormal kind of response to disappear. But you can't get rid of the fact that you right. are more predisposed to have this condition. Yeah. That has other problems as well, because if you modify people's immune system, it can mean they're more susceptible to other illnesses. So you'll often find that they catch colds easier. Maybe they, they probably had COVID five, six times. You know, it's it, it, there are knock-on effects. And we've yeah. talked about this so many times, James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you know, we always say you don't get anything for free. Uh, so you can help modify their Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, but there are knock-on effects. So, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I just want to add to what Jenna said. Super important point. So when patients come with this condition, the first thing I do before putting them on immunosuppression is send them to uh, um, someone in Gemma's field, uh, like um, a um, consultant family physician, and um, have all their vaccines out of the way. Okay. Because you know you're going to put yeah. them on medication that alters their immune system. They're not allowed live vaccines, but they can have, and most, luckily most um, vaccines are non-live vaccines. So you try and give them the best protection before you start the medication. When they start the medication, they also need updates and boosters, and uh, and you need to you know hand washing and trying to avoid people that are unwell and X, Y, and Z. So all of this is also another, like, uh, it's it's a complete life change in, in a bowl, sense yeah, of of treatment, but the, it it's not as extreme as someone, for example, going through like something as radical as a bone marrow transplantation. It still the yeah. you more or less can have a normal life. You just need to just take normal precautions. That's is, about is, it. Is this an area? I mean, and I I say this this is kind of a leading question because I I already have I already have the answer in my head <laughs> because I and it's interesting. So the question is, and I'm gonna then I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what the question is, then I'm gonna explain something, then I'm gonna come back and, and get your take on it. this. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. No. You ready? You ready? So, yeah, I'm ready. so the first part is I know two people who've who've gone through this, one old and one young. Yeah. So this is very interesting. One, the younger person has kept the bag. The older person had everything I you know, bag is gone, so I don't, you know, whatever was done is done. Interesting case in both scenarios. We never talk about this. And maybe in their families they do, but I mean, I've met both of them many times post-diagnosis and post-treatments. Uh, it's not something we talk about ever. Yet there's always a million questions, but we never really talk about it. And so the, that leading into the question, is this something that people don't talk about enough to A, understand, and B, help others as you said like almost 30 percent of people who could be diagnosed could need to have some form of so operative true, thing yeah. just to to know that this is out there and and start thinking more about it ibd did you get that sense 
it, it's an it's a part of the body that a lot of people don't like to discuss. Yeah, we don't talk about the washroom. I mean, I yeah. do. But you do. I do. I, you, yeah, I'm, I'm always looking every day. Yeah, you're very open. I should, I should have a spreadsheet because, you know. Well, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I think I need a spreadsheet to track. But you're very images. open and you've probably created that environment for your children. But generally, I remember having a chat with my grandma <laughs> And yeah. if she had an upset stomach, she wouldn't tell my granddad. Mm. It was considered a real uh-huh. no Taboo, go. Yeah. yeah. Taboo. So I, I guess that yeah. still lingers on in today's population. I yeah. don't know. You know, I, I think being, uh, I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of. No. And I don't think um, people have anything to hide here. Yeah. Um, but it is personal information. So um, however anyone wants to share or not share, that is at the end of the day up to them. Um, and, and people do have, different perceptions um on um how people will respond to that and of course like a lot of things sometimes just sharing a bit of information with someone leads to so many different questions they don't want to mm. go through that journey again yeah you know they're just like look i've been through it yeah you know i'm gonna just you know i'd rather m- meet my friend to just enjoy a meal and just you know that's why i'm here and and life um has so many pressures these days uh, that one of the major pressures that I don't know about yourself, but most people find uh, is uh, the kind of the mental aspect of things. You sure. know, the, we're all under a degree of stress and a lot of people feel anxious in certain situations. Add to that perception and body image and yeah. and how your overall well-being is affected. I can totally understand why some people just want to just meet you and just have a good time and yeah. talk about that sort of stuff. Do you, do you find the the prevalence of this is going up or is it you know really stayed the same uh, throughout the course of of your practice i think what's really obvious from the beginning of my journey from medical school to now is two things first of all people are more uh, aware of this condition clinicians in particular are more aware yeah. of this condition we have um and because of that we're diagnosing more people that would have been missed in the past our diagnostic criteria been more refined so it's not um, as vague as it used to be and medication also is um, much more tailored to the patient so because of all these factors we tend to pick more people up from the population that have it that we could have missed in the past Mm. Uh, we're also becoming more and more um, aware of the specific genes that are involved in this and we're trying to use this in research in the future to do two things. First of all, possibly, it's not there yet, um, use the genetic um, element as a diagnostic criteria. And the second element is using the genetic information to know which drugs work best with which uh, patients. Okay. And this has two sides of it. First of all, the drug has side effects, so we could avoid giving the drug if we know from the genetic profile that it's going to cause the side effects rather than just monitoring, which is a lot of what we do now. Now we monitor them, they get the side effects, we stop the drug. So if we know this from the beginning, we can avoid that. And then the second thing is maybe we can find out from the genes, okay, from all this, this drug has a better chance of success. So rather than try a few drugs to get to the right one, we can just pick the right one from the beginning. We're not there yet, but there's a lot of good work happening in the background. And I'm very confident we're going to get there at some point in the future. Do you think there's any way that knowing somebody that's been born with the genetic material to suggest that they're going to go on to develop Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, there's any way of almost getting in there early and trying to put them on an elemental diet from a young age and almost hope that the disease never 
Sorry, James, am I just playing footsie with you? Yeah, yeah you're playing Sorry, footsie. James. It's okay. It's, by the way, just to be clear, I'm not part of any of this. So. <laughs> it's just the thing me and James got going on. Um, but do you think that there's a way of trying to almost sidestep to some degree, obviously not entirely, but to some degree sidestep the actual, the, the larger, more severe presentations of the disease? So like a preventative yeah, uh, yeah. kind yeah. of test. Sometimes this... Um, applies to certain disease processes when like say a parent may have it or two parents may have it and yeah. they want to avoid their kids like uh, going through symptoms or complications and identify diseases early um but i don't think because of the fact that this is involving multiple genes that mm. this is going to be something that is used in that context if it was just um one two three four genes or even a few more, then fine. Uh, but if there are so many different genes, they all express themselves somewhat differently. Mm. So even if you may have it, it doesn't mean that you're going to get the disease. And do you want to know and then live in fear yeah. of when you get a symptom, which could be nothing? That, it's like oh catch-22, isn't it? It's yeah. so I, I, I think yeah. most of the work at the moment is not in that field, but things can change. And if we do eventually come up with like saying, actually, this is such a strong gene, that if you test for this, then the likelihood is X amount, and it's a high likelihood, then maybe there comes a, a kind of a point in life when someone has like a colonoscopy, and if everything's fine, then... But the, in all honesty, this is all theoretical, and mm. it's not there. I mean, or we all try and encourage our children and ourselves to have a more elemental diet from the yeah. offset, which mm. is yeah. what there's a huge stop campaign the processed for. Food. Yeah. So stop eating as much processed food. I mean, it's yeah, interesting. Hey, you're, you're very right about the processed food because, um, you know, what's processed and what's not. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, movement towards a more plant-based diet, yeah. and that's excellent, and I'm all for that um, for a variety of reasons. But then you see a lot of the plant-based products yeah. out yeah. there that are so super uh, processed yeah. in order to taste similar for sure to appease the palates of people that weren't vegetarian before or vegan. Um. Th that you have to kind of think, you know, there's quite a lot of salt in this. There's yeah. al already a lot of this in, in this. And, what, and, and yeah, this. What chemicals are used in the process yeah. to make it? And, and, you know, I go, I go back to a tape cassette that I was listening to <laughs> 25 years ago. And there was uh, a, a portion of that cassette uh, was with Dr. David Suzuki talking about food storage of all things. And, and he was talking about plastics actually. So this is like 25 years ago. We're talking about plastic. He's talking about storages and he's talking about plastics leaching into our diets now. And he's going cans. He says, you know, canned food, cans are lined with plastic mm -hmm. and our things are coming in. You know, how much of, of plastics are leaching into what we eat, what we drink. So even this fresh stuff, you know, how did, and, it, and his, his thing was, look, he says, we know that it's happening. We just don't know what it's doing. Sure. And then over a, a long period of time, what might that impact be on you and I? And, and who knows? But you know, if you can eliminate some of these things, at least that's one less tick box of, hey, this might have an effect on something over a period of time. So. Like with all information and all advice, um, practicality and sustainability yeah. are super important. Yeah. So I can, me and you can have a chat and we can talk about all the things that are good for us. Yeah. But if we can't practically implement them or if we can't maintain them for a, a kind of a regular kind of day-to-day -day, uh, practice, then it it's not going to be as helpful. Exactly. And 
there are there's a lot of advice there that says this is bad for you, this is bad for you, this is, or this is good for you, and you find that the good stuff is super expensive. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like okay, I, I know, but I can't just live off this. This is really expensive, um, and and then the stuff that's really bad for you, it's like in everything. So yeah. I I have to always, and I always when someone comes to see me, say in a, a clinical setting. I always put myself in their shoes. I'm like, look, I can sit here and tell you that all this is bad or all this is good. But really, how you implement it is more important than what I say. Yeah. And in a strange way, and you may find this strange too, Jen, I've actually tried a lot of the diets that I advise. <laughs> yeah. When I was... Um, <laughs> and that's dedication. When yeah. I was, that's really when good. When I was training. I even put like a nasogastric tube. I didn't do anything more than that. But yeah, yeah I put it just to see how that feels. Um, oh, my, you did it to yourself? No, I didn't go that far. Someone someone put the tube, uh, but I stayed with it for a whole day just to kind of appreciate it. So, so only saying that because a friend of mine did self catheterize himself in a hospital when he was delirious. That's why I okay I asked the question. (laughs) Maybe I should meet this friend of yours. This is the friend. This is the dancing guy. We were talking about my friend beforehand because he's crazy and he sends crazy videos, and so we were discussing like Kermit the Frog. Yeah, he does. I hope hope he didn't send the catheterization video. Luckily, there was no no uh, imagery no, of no this. Imagery yeah. of <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, y- you then understand yeah. what it means. Like even what may seem simple, but asking someone to go gluten free, yeah, it's not easy. No, no, it's hard. It's really hard. You start looking at everything that's got gluten in it, and things you don't even realize have gluten in them. It's like really gravy, gravy yeah. granules. I know, devastating. I, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to put that to my <laughs> list. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, Marks and Spencers, I just like to say, do offer gluten-free gravy granules. So, yeah. so all is not so lost. So for everyone out there, make sure you write that down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of an, an endemic issue of the way society has evolved on how much we just go to the grocery store and buy and don't think about where it came from, what's gone into that process. And, and even, you know, like, again, frozen vegetables and you know you get them and i often say to people you ever been by a frozen vegetable factory because i mean they come out and they're nice in a bag but the smell of all of the stuff that they use to boil and shred and peel and it's it's horrible it does not smell good going by one of these places i'll take your word for it oh it's it's it's, it's really horrible but that's that that that, in the end of the day that's what we want and and it's convenience and people's lives are fast and everyone wants to to eat on the go yeah it's handy to have in the freezer, yeah. of course. So, yeah. and as, as Dr. Hossam said, and we say every week, moderation is yeah. key. And, and, it's and sustainability something. of change practice is a big one, you know. Yeah. And, and I think COVID actually gave us a little window into this and how much we can sustain. And I'm thinking just people who were now making their own bread and people who were, you know, X, Y, Z, they still, you know, we had two years, we're, we're just finishing two years. So we had a good year and a half where people suddenly were, I'm going to do all this. And I often say to people, how many are still doing this stuff? Yeah, for sure. Like, and I think that, I mean, I don't have any statistics, but I, you know, looking around and talking to people in general, anecdotally, not many, no. you know, they've just, oh, I don't make bread anymore. I just buy it. It's like, really? Why wouldn't you just keep doing it? It's time, it's James, time. Time. That's the problem is that it's always a fight, isn't it? So yeah. people had this lovely abundance of time during COVID lockdown, which was one of yeah. the only saving graces. Yeah, yeah. But then sadly, people just slip back into yeah. old habits. And then that stress kicks in, and next thing you know, oh God, the world like like who would have thought like <laughs> what we're facing today is what we would have faced when we were facing COVID. Everything yeah. just moves so quickly, and yeah. a lot of people. I mean, you can see this in the news. A lot of people are worrying about the cost of living and yeah. you know security and things like that. So, 
priorities change, I suppose, but I do miss the smell of sourdough. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I, one last question, and this is, you know, Hassan, what got you into this specialty? Why? That's a good question. Why'd you go this direction? That's a good question. It, can I, I just can say, it's a really good question because I still have PTSD from my gastroenterology ward as an yeah, F1. Yeah, that's really good. I, I don't blame you. Yeah. I don't blame you. And I do love what I do. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be quite brief about this. So first of all, a lot of doctors, their first job sticks with them the most. My first job was in gastroenterology. As a medical okay. student, I was attached to a lot of um, firms, but as a doctor, my first job was in gastroenterology and I had an excellent consultant. And mentors really leave a positive impression. If he was bad, then I wouldn't have liked it. Second of all, after doing my uh, junior training, I was interested in surgery, but I didn't want to spend all my days in theater. And I loved the medical aspect, as we said, the investigative aspect and the kind of thinking aspect. Not as extreme as Dr. House, but just that kind of cerebral element. Uh, but I didn't want to just end up doing ward rounds every day, day yeah. in, day out, looking at numbers. And I think there are maybe three or maybe four specialties in medicine, gastroenterology being one of them, where you can do the medical aspect and then we have endoscopy. So we have the practical aspect. Mm. So it's the variety that keeps it interesting for me. Plus, I get to meet people that are young and old, um, you know, of uh, different uh, backgrounds, different uh, financial backgrounds. And it, it's rewarding in the sense that it's it's quite varied uh, and it has a lot of elements involved in it. It's not just one thing. So um, I get bored quickly, James, is the thing. So I, 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 I need to... Oh, this table is of like... <laughs> <laughs> we kindred spirits here. I was going to say, I wouldn't worry. Every time somebody comes on, James always wants to do to do that job next. No, no, so. I don't want to do this job, but I'm going to do the spreadsheet. Okay. With yeah. images. I yeah. think if I track the images, then, you know, if oh, I ever okay. have to come in and see you and I just go, here it is. Yeah. You know, what do you think? Yeah. I can you, bring it in for you if you want. He sure. will refer you over to a different <laughs> consultant yeah. quite quickly. Thank you in advance for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, one of the things after all of these podcasts, I'm thinking I need a stool sample containers at home just to collect every now and then and just periodically get a, a test done on them. You know, it's just like, I kind of feel, you know, because I often talk about podcasting and thing is you're, you're, you've got valuable content that people just never record. And I'm kind of thinking, i got valuable content that's not being tested. So This reminds me of my granddad turning up. Every time he went to see his doctor, he took a jam jar of urine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, you know, a big mason jar. I'm starting yeah. to think that I should have urine samples and stool samples every time I go. I say, hey, brought you some presents. Well, I, I, <laughs> yeah. As much as I want to say, always be prepared, I, I, can, I, I can tell you that you don't need to go that far. And, and and I know like being aware is super important, but at the same time, yeah. like uh, and to all our listeners out there, um, just live your life. You, you know, there's just so much stuff out there that people can easily get caught up in. And as I said, Google can be a good source of information. But if you have a bit of loose stool or tummy cramp, it's probably nothing. But if it's happening quite yeah. regularly, then it's worth checking out. Um, and the first step on that journey is go to your GP for sure, for sure. So, um, you know. Common things are common, and um, um, being sensible is always the best way forward. Um, uh, health anxiety can also be a source of yeah. a lot of angst um, and issues for a lot of patients, so it's important to try and avoid that too. And we can find you, Dr. Sum, at the City Hospital, Mediclinic City Hospital. That is right. If, uh, if city Hospital, Mediclinic, City Hospital. I know. I never know. Is, is it Mediclinic, City, city Hospital, hospital Mediclinic? You know. Anyway, it's City Hospital. Yeah, yeah City Hospital. And always, always happy to um, you know, answer all your questions. Um, really thank you for inviting me. 
And, um, you know, I hope anybody that's been listening to us today uh, gets some valuable information. And if you do get some questions on the side, I'll be happy to kind of uh, take them on and answer them at any point. Wonderful. Dr. Sam, yeah. thank you very much. It's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. Very informative, very educational. Absolutely entertaining. Just <laughs> all the boxes. Jenna, as always. Thank you very much, this James. Was tons of fun. And thanks for coming, Dr. Sam. Yeah, we'll Pleasure. do it all again thanks really for inviting soon. Me. Thanks for listening to the Doc Talk podcast, and we'll be back at you before too long. Thank you very much for listening. So long for now. <laughs>